showdown on the Sunset Strip. Hollywood actors and writers fight for their piece of the entertainment pie. The politics of football in Spain, where it's more than just a beautiful game. And just listen to your mother. Wait, I was, wait, uh, wait. Tucker Carlson's successor at Fox gets an earful on how to be a journalist. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we provide explanatory journalism about journalism. Hollywood has effectively shut down after actors joined writers in a strike, the first of its kind in the U.S. in 63 years. Beyond the fictional glamour of the film and television industry is the reality that many writers and actors are poorly paid, even exploited for their work. This dispute is a byproduct of a fast-changing industry. The transition to streaming models has resulted in writers seeing their incomes take a dive. Worried about being replaced in your job by some form of generative artificial intelligence? Imagine what actors see. Technology that can clone their appearance and could render them redundant. The union representing actors, SAG-AFTRA, says AI poses an existential threat to creative professions. On the other side of this cinematic showdown is the alliance of motion picture and TV producers. Companies like Universal, Warner Brothers, Disney, Netflix and Amazon. Executives who are used to coming out on top and are determined to do the same in a power struggle that could reshape Hollywood. Writers can tell stories, so can pictures, of picket lines and economic reality in the land of make-believe. Hollywood screenwriters coming up with lines aimed at news audiences as opposed to filmgoers. Actors joined the strike just as their paymasters, studio moguls and media barons, were wrapping up a gathering that took place under rather more pleasant conditions. An annual meeting laid on by an investment bank, what has come to be known as a summer camp for billionaires. Rupert Murdoch's there every year, and Bob Iger's there every year, the head of Fox, the head of Disney, and lots of deals do get done there, but they're there biking, they're there skeet shooting, and so all of these photos are coming out literally the same day as people are headed to the picket line saying, I can't pay my rent. So the, the optics of that were horrible. These media moguls are in this retreat while the actors are taking to the picket lines in 100 degree heat. Bob Iger from the Walt Disney Company, who is incredibly well respected in the industry, was um, interviewed by the Business Channel here in the United States. There's a level of expectation that they have that is just not realistic. And that caused an uproar and a backlash that this man, who is very handsomely compensated, his, his deal is worth at least 25 million US dollars a year, and he's telling these writers that they're not being realistic in their demands. This sort of class warfare is really becoming a signature part of this strike, and I don't think the studios anticipated this. For screenwriters and the actors who have joined them on the picket lines, this is a dispute about what are known as residuals and the impact that streaming services have had on their pay packets. Both writers and actors have always been paid some money up front, but have typically relied on residuals to get by. Royalties that are paid down the line as the programs and films continue to rack up viewers. Those residual checks have shrunk to ridiculously, at times comically, low levels. That's the first check. 
That's the second check. And that's the third check. And that's why we're going to strike. It is a consequence of how streaming services have upended the entertainment industry, obliterated its economic model, and left it in search of a new one. Each streaming platform is trying to get subscribers from another streaming platform. And where do these studios find a way to pay for mega millions of dollar episodes? They take it out of our paychecks, the artists, the writers and the actors who bring them to life. As an actor, I've gotten residual checks from streaming shows that were 12 cents. A show that I was writing on, Dear White People, we were writing our season during Freedom Summer when George Floyd was murdered and Breonna Taylor was murdered. And there was a huge spike in past episodes, but we did not see that revenue stream. There was a 300% jump in rewatching and seeing that show, but that does not translate to a residual for us. 63 years ago, the actors and the writers came together on the picket line and they got residuals. Here we are 63 years later and we're in the same position because residuals are disappearing because of streaming and streaming is using a different form of compensation. And it's a big problem um, because for many writers and for many actors, this is how they are paid. In the past, a writer, an actor, a, a producer would work on 22 episodes of a television show a year. Now there are fewer episodes of a series being produced, but way more series being produced. So the creative people are not working nine or 10 months a year, they're only working three or four months a year. You also have huge concerns with generative artificial intelligence. Actors and the writers are concerned, and experts say they have reason to be concerned. Like writers in so many fields, screenwriters have reason to fear AI's potential to generate content and replace human labor. I am not Morgan Freeman, and what you see is not real. For actors, the dangers are clear, present, and far more personal. AI's ability to capture their faces, duplicate their voices. The studios say they put a groundbreaking AI proposal on the negotiating table, one that the union said boiled down to this. Background performers should be able to be scanned, get one day's pay, and their companies should own that scan their likeness, and be able to use it for the rest of eternity on any project they want with no consent and no compensation. What studio bosses call groundbreaking, actors see as potentially career-ending. An actor that might only go on set for and be paid for half a day, the studios are now saying, we want to be able to use your likeness in perpetuity. And that is essentially half day's pay for an entire lifetime of potential work. So for actors, it's an existential crisis. The studios do recognize that this is an issue that, they, that has a lot of unknown permutations that will come with time. You see Lord Vader, she can be reasonable. After an actor dies, who is very famous, might there be interest in creating new films or scenes in films with that actor 
of course you would compensate that actor or their estate for that, but what does that look like? And in the same way that the entire world is contending with the risks that might come from generative AI, actors are worrying about the same thing. Everything that we have done has been siphoned for decades to essentially have AI replace us. It, if anything, we should get a residual check from AI because it's taking from us. And the irony is AI could actually do the executive's job better than the artist's because their jobs are basically to look for patterns, to cut costs, and it's not a creative process. It's just a profitable one. For all of the tales Hollywood tries to tell on screen, it is fitting that its own story of inequity and exploitation in a technologically changing world should so accurately reflect the problems that plague so many other industries, victimizing workers everywhere. It's the kind of reality TV that audiences can identify with. And those obscene salary figures for those summer camping studio heads that should be the stuff of fiction but are not, it always helps to have a bad guy, or two, or more. Every year, The Wrap publishes the salaries of the CEOs of these companies. They are enormous. They're ridiculous. They're not tethered to the economic realities. These are companies whose valuations are quite stagnant. They are mature companies. They are not growing anymore. And for uh, CEOs to be taking home $50 million a year, $45 million a year, um, doesn't make any sense. Forget about the optics, just the economics of it don't make any sense. Labor across the board is being pushed to the ends. And we're not alone. Amazon warehouse workers, hospitality people at hotels, teachers, we're joining together as a force of labor to be like, enough is enough. And we also need to stop glorifying our CEOs. They're just people. They don't deserve to make five and 600 times the amount of the lower worker. But now we have completely eroded the middle class and been gaslighted to believe that we just don't work hard enough. And that's not fair and that's not right. This divide between the people who are really well paid and everyone else, you really have to look at the people at the top. Are they willing to share more of the profits with people who work and toil and put out the programming, the, the people who are part of the machine? And it is odd that Hollywood has become sort of part of the face of this global movement for better working conditions. But it has. The Israeli president, Itzhak Herzog, visited the U.S. this past week. A visit built around telegenic ceremonies and spectacle, with some awkward bilateral issues bubbling just beneath the surface. Minakshi Ravi is here with the details. Richard, this is Israeli President Herzog's second official visit to Washington during the Biden presidency. Notable since Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu hasn't visited yet. His government, which has been called the country's most right-wing government ever, has had its differences with the Biden White House. The occupation of the West Bank has intensified, with more and more settlers taking over Palestinian homes. Israel is also more than six months into a series of protests against Netanyahu's proposed judicial overhaul, the opponents of which say threatens Israel's democracy itself. 
Washington has criticized some of these developments, but has also helped bankroll the Israeli government to the tune of nearly $4 billion a year in foreign military financing, which multiple members of the U.S. Congress now oppose. We cannot remain silent when our government sends $3.8 billion of military aid to Israel that is used to demolish Palestinian homes, imprison Palestinian children, and displace Palestinian families. Aware of the criticism swirling around the U.S.-Israel relationship, Herzog addressed Congress. I respect criticism, especially from friends, although one does not always have to accept it. Beyond the symbolism of the visit was one substantive act, a resolution passed by the House of Representatives affirming that Israel is not a racist or apartheid state, not exactly a high human rights bar, and that the United States will always be a staunch partner and supporter of Israel. That flies in the face of numerous rights organizations, Amnesty International and the Israel-based B'Tselem amongst them, that have declared Israel a de facto apartheid state. And there are numerous polls indicating support for Israel in the United States is falling. The other issue that could find its way to Congress, a renewed push by human rights and press freedom organizations to pass legislation that would require the U.S. government to investigate last year's killing of Al Jazeera journalist Shirin Abu Akleh by Israeli forces. The Biden administration is in no hurry to do that, despite the fact that Abu Akleh was a Palestinian-American. Thanks, Mina. Spanish voters go to the polls this weekend in an election that could result in the strongest showing for the far right since the days of Francisco Franco's dictatorship. General Franco ruled the country for 36 years. He was never overthrown. And Spaniards wouldn't taste democracy again until after the general's death in 1975. Among the places that Franco's legacy lingers is on the football pitch. He understood the power of the sport, its hold on the masses, and he used it as a propaganda tool, primarily the rivalry between the country's top two teams, Real Madrid and FC Barcelona. But that did not end with Franco, and the Real-Barca rivalry has been playing out ever since. The Listening Post's Flo Phillips now from Madrid on the role that football continues to play in Spanish politics. It all started with a press conference, a two-hour one, hosted by Spanish football club FC Barcelona. The president of the club, Juan Laporta, was out to address long-held allegations of corruption and match-fixing. But he didn't just defend himself and his predecessors over claims of multi-million dollar payouts to referees. Laporta diverted attention away from Barca, taking aim at the other top team in the league, its main rival, Real Madrid. It was an exercise in deflection, and it reignited a historic rivalry. Which team is seen as the team of the regime? Regime can be understood in different ways. Regime is in the Spanish state, but in, in particular, and very specifically, the idea within a Barcelona fan base that Real Madrid is the regime team relating to the Franco regime. Barca! Barca! All of a sudden, it creates a million historians that weren't there before, a million people deciding, right, we know what history is, and choosing, cherry-picking the moments of history that suit the already preconceived uh, narrative or agenda that they're pushing. Madrid! 
When you look at the rivalry between Madrid and Barcelona in particular as the embodiment of Spanish football, the two biggest clubs, it's impossible to understand it without a political context. The pushback from Real Madrid against FC Barcelona was immediate. Just hours after Laporta's remarks, the club's in-house TV channel broadcast a four-minute video with the title, Which is the Team of the Regime? Real was delving deep into political history and Barcelona's relationship with Spain's former dictator, Francisco Franco, whose repressive regime had lasted almost four decades. The way um, the, the facts were, were produced, um, it, was, it was perfectly done to sort of somehow produce this idea that Football Club Barcelona was, uh, was a club very close to Francoism. Well, there were pictures uh, of the Camp Nou being inaugurated, uh, done so by the, by the Franco ministry at the time, with uh, religious presence of bishops and uh, religious chanting, and the Spain flag being visibly put in the, uh, in the proceedings. And that Barcelona just condecorated Franco a few times with the highest possible condecoration from the club. And I tell you, they better did, because if they didn't, uh, it, they would be seen as, uh, as rebels. But it was a stadium where freedom was clearly displayed as well. Of course, that's not in the video. The flag of Catalonia was seen at the Camp Nou at a time where it was illegal. Songs were chanted at the Camp Nou that allowed people that thought differently to, uh, to the dictatorship to express themselves. It was one of those uh, few forums where people could do it without the fear of, uh, of being arrested. The link in between Football Club Barcelona and the Franco dictatorship was, was exaggerated, to say the least. In historical terms, it's very difficult to decide who is the most Francoist team. It is obvious that the Franco dictatorship used Real Madrid for propaganda purposes for what we would call today soft power. This is uh, a pariah dictatorship in Europe and they needed very badly to have international success. And Real Madrid was the platform that provided some sort of international recognition. But then, of course, when, when Barcelona were doing well, um, they would actually say, well, you know, Barcelona is the representation of, uh, of Spain. Who and what represents Spain is complicated, even today. Its diversity defies easy catch-all definitions. There's the capital, Madrid, with all the symbolic connotations of power and wealth that comes with being located in the very center of the country. But then there are numerous autonomous regions, like Catalonia and the Basque Country, with their distinctive languages, cultures, and political ideals. And Spain's football teams are real-life representations of those regional identities. They've been used throughout history as soft power players in a never-ending political game. These narratives are ingrained in the club's ideologies. And in the case of Real Madrid, which plays here in the historic Bernabeu Stadium, it all started more than a century ago when the king gave the team its name. Real Madrid has got uh, as a uh, name, Real, which means royal, but didn't just before the war, uh, when the Republic was in charge, there was no monarchy and the royal was taken out. So 
football in general has been used by the politicians to uh, to make a point. The fan base and um, and the dictatorship um, and, the, and the director sports actually change over the years. At the beginning of the 20th century, it was it was somehow a club related to the Spanish monarchy, and it had a fairly conservative base. That became even more the case in the 1920s with the dictatorship of Primo de Rivera. During the Civil War, we actually have a communist uh, president of Real Madrid. And the Franco, um, that changed again, and we have presidents that are very close to the, to the Franco dictatorship. When you're talking about the back end of the Franco regime, the beginnings of an opening up, the beginnings of, if you like, an opposition emerging, Barcelona see themselves as a point of resistance. Their slogan as more than a club, and the idea of more than a club, the phraseology of more than a club, starts uh, gaining currency in the late 60s, early 70s, very much as this idea that Barcelona are a club that represent Catalan society. Catalan political um, aspirations, maybe even a degree of Catalan nationalism, but again, like most identities, there's a degree there in which it's challenged and some groups see it differently than others. And so you get this idea that essentially more than the club really just means that we mean something beyond what happens on the football pitch. That's exactly what happened with this most recent feud. It moved from the pitch to the political arena. The Catalonian government spokesperson condemned the accusations made by Real Madrid against FC Barcelona. Madrid's community president jumped to Real's defence and then went on the attack. Me parece no solo un video fantástico, sino que creo que el equipo de comunicación y documentación del Real Madrid debería seguir trabajando. A back and forth, a reminder for fans following the play-by-play -play from their phones that football in Spain is not just a game. Society right now is very divided and, and very tribal. So whatever is sent by the politicians that can bring the votes and can bring the attention, they will use. And quite clearly, the Barcelona-Real Madrid division is something that has been used by both representatives of the Madrid government, local government, and also the, uh, the Catalan government to benefit their own, their own ideas. Football is powerful because football carries with it the, the aspirations and the identities of, of thousands and thousands of people. And so it's, it's a fantastic tool for reaching people. You talk, for example, to people who've been directors at either Real Madrid or Barcelona, and they will talk to you about how the degree of pressure they're under, the degree of exposure they face, the degree of access they get, is greater even than some of the politicians they talk to. This is a huge tool for mobilization of votes, of opinions, of attitudes, and of people fundamentally. And so politicians know that attitudes towards football and the way they engage with football fans takes with it the potential to either gain, or perhaps more importantly, lose huge amounts of votes. That's why the politics around football will always have its limits. Because when the final whistle blows, you want to be on the winning team. And finally, the not-so-great replacement theory, Fox News version. Jesse Waters has officially taken over Tucker Carlson's primetime slot at Fox after the network jettisoned Carlson and his conspiracy theories in the wake of that huge lawsuit. To mark his first program, Waters' mother, who's much more liberal than her son is, called in with some advice, the kind you don't expect to hear at an outlet like Fox. Will Waters listen to his mommy, or will he do what others at Fox have done? 
take his orders from the network's patriarch, Rupert Murdoch. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post. A very special guest on the line, a Democrat, my mom. Mom, Hello how there, have you... Jesse. Hello there, Mom. <laughs> how have you um, enjoyed the show so far? I have enjoyed the show. I want to say congratulations, Honey Bun. We are so proud of you and your accomplishments. (laughs) I have a list here. In keeping with the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. We need you to be kind and respectful. You yourself mentioned that humble is a stretch, so I I get that. (laughs) Use your voice responsibly to promote conversation that maintains a narrative thread. There, there really has been enough Biden bashing. I, I love you. Wait, I was, wait, 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 okay. wait, wait. I, I knew this was a bad idea. I want you to seek solutions versus <laughs> fanning the flames. Good luck. Thank you very much, Mom. I love you very much. And, I love uh, you. I'm thinking that a small dinner between five and eight would right, be the way to go. All right, we got to go, Mom. This is just like how <laughs> things are at home.